Well, it's an easy answer to give when someone asks how you are doing. I'm fine. <laughs> all is well. We're, we're good. You know, no problem at all. And um, it's interesting that that's such a default answer that sometimes we give, perhaps without even thinking if we really are fine at all, uh, or things may not be going well whatsoever. We're, we're in a text this evening, however, where we're going to see pictures of how God is displayed how to have an all is well faith, a bold faith that's able to say, no, even in crisis and difficulties and hardships, I'm able to still say that all is well. That, that comes from Second Kings chapter four. If you have your copies of God's word will be in Second Kings chapter four. And as you're finding your place there in 2 Kings 4, uh, this is an interesting chapter, particularly because most writers and scholars don't seem to know what to do with it. And perhaps if you've ever read the chapter, you might think the same, where you seem to have just a bunch of random, strange miracles happening. (laughs) And they're hard to understand why are these strange miracles happening? They're nothing of seemingly great significance. Uh, and, and a lot of writers look at this and go, well, I, I don't know what to make of it. Why are we having such silly miracles being done by this Elisha fellow? Uh, and what does that have to do with anything? And so tonight, as we look at this chapter, it really is a cohesive unit. And, and I want you to think about as we go through each segment, some of the segments may seem to be a bit disjointed, and yet our author has has put them together in the life of Elisha for a reason. And so we're going to look at the, the small points and these little snippets along the way of this chapter. But as we get to the end, we'll take the thread and we'll run them all together and we'll see what all this is doing in terms of how we are supposed to have an all-is-well faith. You may remember that one of the things that we've uh, done as we've gone through Samuel and Kings is seeing that there are these foreshadowing pictures of redemptive history. We noted not only as Elijah, who will represent symbolically of John the baptizer, but also of Christ. You see the same thing with Elisha in his role of the savior of Israel as he continues the work of of his ministry that Elijah had started in trying to preach and teach in Israel. You have in, in 2 Kings chapter 4 uh, an immediate problem that, that arises that tells us in verse 1 that the wife of the one of the prophets, essentially you have this group of prophets that we've seen that Elisha has. Well, that man dies. And in verse 1, the wife comes to Elisha and says, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditors have come to take my two children to be his slaves. And so there's this crisis that is set before Elisha. The issue is that now that the husband is dead, apparently they have some kind of uh, great debt. And one of the things that you see in the law of Moses was that you were allowed to sell yourself and 
sell your children to be doing work and slavery to pay off the debt. But the picture seems an awful lot stronger than that because here it just seems to be that they're just going to be taken. That's the, the, the implication she's given. We have this great debt and the one that we owe it to, he's come to take my two children to, to be his slaves. It's reminiscent of the picture that you see when Jesus is uh, alive and in Israel and condemns Israel for devouring the homes of widows. And it seems like that is what's happening here is that there's not compassion for this situation in regards to the widow and the children. He's just coming to collect what is his. And Elisha's answer in verse two, I think, is uh, really represents the heart of God in so many ways, because he just simply says, well, well, what would you like for me to do for you? Now, what, what, what can I do to, to deal with your circumstance? How can I help this situation? And you'll notice the answer is, is about what she has in the house. Verse 2, Elisha, tell me, what have you in the house? And she says, your servant has nothing but in the house except a jar of oil. So essentially, I have nothing. I have just a jar of oil is in the cupboard, and that, that's about it. And so Elisha says, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to all of your neighbors and all of your friends. And I want you to get as many empty jars as you possibly can and take them all back into your house. And so we're told that that's exactly what she does is that she borrows all of these vessels in verse three and goes in and shuts the door and does all of that. And he says there in verse four, so go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went to him and shut the door behind herself and her sons and she poured. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. And when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. And then the oil stopped flowing and she came and told the man of God. And he said, go sell the oil, pay your debts and you and your sons can live on the rest. Interesting saying, well, I just have a jar of oil. We'll get as many jars as you can possibly find that are empty. And she take, takes that jar of oil and she just starts pouring in an empty one and then pours that into an empty one and just keeps going and going and going until she has such a significant amount that she's able to sell the oil to be able to pay the debt. And I want you to see that you have here God using what the widow has and you have some great parallels and pictures of how God rescues his people. You might remember this is awfully similar to Elijah and remember that he comes to a widow who he asks of her, uh, bring me something to eat. And you might remember that the widow says, I just had a little bit left that my son and I were going to eat. We were going to die. Uh, we, we're, we're out. We don't have anything. And the same thing happens that during the famine, so long as Elijah was with her, that flower then would, would never cease from, from replenishing itself. Well, the same thing similarly happens here in regards to now this widow. And the picture is not just a random, oh, what a neat miracle. Wow, he pours oil in, in jars and isn't that neat. But this idea that uh, the Savior is... And his arrival is about paying the debts. Here is a woman who is helpless and hopeless. Her husband has died. The debts are great. The creditors have come. They're going to take the children into slavery. And God has an answer for that. God has a response and a way to rescue this widow from the problem. That God comes and he's able to pay our debts so that we are not enslaved. And I want you to see that all she does is just show faith. I mean, think about the strangeness of what she's told to do. I want you to get as many jars as you can find. 
And with that one jar you have, you're going to be filling all of these other jars. That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) She just had to trust in the man of God's word. She just had to believe that that was actually going to do something, and she did. And so here is this first picture in this first paragraph uh, of this chapter is of this woman who is in great need, and God pays the debt so that she can continue with her family. Now, The opposite side of the coin happens in verses 8 through 17, because in verse 8, we now encounter a woman of the opposite condition. In verse 8, you will notice that it says we have a wealthy woman. But what she does here in verse 8, it says, he urged Elijah to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on our, on our, on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go there. So you'll notice now here is a wealthy woman and she's just watching Elisha pass by back and forth. And whenever she can, she's trying to provide him food and now sets up a place for for him to stay as he goes. And notice the whole reason why is given here is she recognizes that this is a holy man of God. Because I know, this is amazing in Israel, by the way, at this point. Israel, who is so far from God, doesn't care about the things of God. And yet this woman has the perception that Elisha is a holy man of God and she is going to provide for him whatever she can possibly provide Give him what he needs, even a place to stay. Now, I think it's interesting because here you have a foreshadowing even of when Christ arrives. Remember, one of the things that we're told in the New Testament is that when it comes to Jesus, that the women are this great benefactor. They, they are the ones who are financially supporting Jesus as he does, does the ministry. And yet here now, Elisha wants to do something for her. Just as in the prior paragraph, here is a woman who comes to Elisha, says, the creditor's going to take my children. And he says, well, what can I do for you? Here now in verse 11, you see, he wants to do something for her because of, of her care for him. And so he tells Gehazi, his servant, to go ask her if there's anything that he can do for her. And he gives a pretty long list of all kinds of things that might be able to do in verse 13. But you'll notice her answer at the end of verse 13 is just simply, I dwell among my own people. Essentially, I'm good. Uh, I'm well provided for. My family provides for me. I'm doing fine in this place. I've got no problem whatsoever. I, I don't need anything. And I want you to observe, she didn't do this because she was looking for something. Now, she didn't decide, I'm going to take care of this man of God because I've got a humdinger of a question of what I'm going to be able to ask him to do. and Maybe he'll do something for me. She's just doing this because he's the holy man of God. And when asked, can I do something for you? The answer is simply, no, I'm I'm fine. I'm Want to provide for you and care for you. And so in verse 14, uh, Elisha then is asking Gehazi, well, what then should be done for her? Notice Elisha wants to do something for her. Is it just like, oh, okay, well, she's fine. What can I do for you? And Gehazi recognizes in verse 14, well, she has no son and her husband is old. And so he says to her, This time about next year, you're going to embrace a son. And notice her response in verse 16. No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servants. Obviously, she is so excited 
about the prospect of being able to have a child. Clearly, they have been unable to have a child. And what Elisha is able to do is make a declaration of life. A husband is, is, is old, is about to die. As we know, in ancient Near Eastern times, you become a widow. That's a very uh, big problem. And even being a, a prominent woman with wealth, she'd blow through that because she doesn't have a son to provide for her in her old age. And so he provides life to her. I, about this time next year, you're going to have a son. Which makes what happens next, I think, shocking. Because in verse 18... When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to my father, Oh, my head, my head. And the father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had, lift, when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Just imagine now here of this this promised child and now the child has has lived is is growing up and then suddenly for whatever reason he he dies the woman takes this this child puts it on the bed of the man of god the place that elisha would stay when he's traveling back and forth but notice what happens next it is awfully strange it says in verse 22 and then she called to her husband and said send me one of your servants and one of the donkeys that i may quickly go to the man of god and come back again and the husband questions this in verse 23 why will you go to him today it's not a new moon or a sabbath why the haste why are you Why are you going to the man of God? And notice her answer in verse 23. She says, all is well. That doesn't seem to be true, does it? (laughs) You think about that for a minute. Here, your son has died. And she says, quickly, I need to get a donkey. Give me a servant. I got to go find the man of God. Well, what's going on? Don't worry, all's fine. And then notice as she then rushes in verse 24, she saddles the donkey and she says to the servant urging the animal on, don't slacken the pace unless I tell you, basically, we're going to go as fast as we can to Mount Carmel to the man of God. And we're told in the middle of verse 25 that Elisha sees her coming and tells Gehazi to go out there and meet her to see what the problem is. And so he runs to her verse 26 and says, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with your child? Verse 26. And she answers all is well wouldn't you expect it right there at that moment you'd go okay no here's the problem (laughs) all is well verse 27 when she came to the mountain the man of god she caught hold of his feet and gehazi came to push her away but the man of god said leave her alone for she is in bitter distress and the lord has hidden it from me and has not told me and then she said, did I not, uh, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? And he said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him and do not, if anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. So essentially Gehazi, take my staff and you go as fast as you can. Don't stop and talk to anybody. Just go right to the child, lay the staff on his head. To heal him. But you will notice it says in verse 30, the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So you can send Gehazi ahead all you want. I'm going to stay right here with you. So Gehazi then 
then runs ahead, and Elisha and the woman then follow behind. It says there in verse 31, Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. And therefore, he returned to meet him and told him the child is not awakened. Can you imagine that scene for a moment? I wish we had like a lot of time. Just stop and think about that for a minute. You get to the man of God. And the man of God sends Gehazi the servant with Elisha's staff. Go run ahead and go lay the staff on the child. It's going to fix this. Gehazi runs back and says, it didn't work. He's not awake. Just imagine the weight of that at that moment. Verse 32, when Elisha came to the house, he saw the child lying dead in his bed. And so he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. And he got up again and walked back and forth in the house. And he went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times. And the child opened his eyes. And then he summoned Gehazi and said, call this Shunite. So he called her, and when she came in, he said, Pick up your son. And she came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. And she picked up her son and went out. Just so amazing, this scene. This is a huge picture here of what God does. Is Here you get a picture of Gehazi. He's unable to revive the child. Here is Elisha, but he's going to be able to do something. You might remember as well, this also parallels Elijah, this connection of a of authority. Remember, Elijah raises a widow's son from the dead. And so now we have another picture of God reversing conditions. And so powerful in this moment to think about. It's not like you have a bunch of miracle workers running around, nor do you have people raising people from the dead. This is a monstrous miracle that occurs right here is that this child is dead, and then whatever the time it takes to travel all the way to the man of God at Mount Carmel, and then to come all the way back, and Elisha that is able to raise him from the dead. And this is why you would see this picture in Jesus' life, where Jesus repeatedly does this kind of thing. And sometimes we don't, don't think about the frequency by which Jesus was able to do this in Matthew 9. Jesus raises a daughter from the dead. In, in Luke 7, there's raising a son from the dead. One that we might remember very well is raising Lazarus from the dead in John 11. Here is Elisha picturing what's going to happen through God, that God reverses conditions. He gives life. He is able to even take death and turn it into life. And did you catch the, the connection as well of the disciple of Elisha failing at the miracle, but when Elisha comes, he succeeds. That also happens with Jesus and his disciples when they're unable to cast out a demon and come back to Jesus. We couldn't cast him out. And then Jesus does, showing the great power that is in Elisha as the servant of God and ultimately then predicting and, and, and foreshadowing the great power of Jesus in what he is able to do. Now, there's two more pictures, and like I said, then we'll tie the thread together of what's going on with all these, because it, it just seems so random of, of themselves. Verse 38, Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. By the way, famine in the land, what does that tell you? God's not happy with Israel. Always, that's, that was always the picture. The famine means you're out of God's favor. You've rejected God's covenant. And so verse 38, and when... As the sons of the prophets were sitting there before me, said to his servant, set on a large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. 
One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from its lap, from his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some of, uh, for the men to eat. But while they were eating the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. And he said, then bring flour. And he threw it in the pot and said, pour out some for the men uh, and they, that they may eat. And there was no more harm in the pot. This is probably the miracle that gets the most ridicule of, uh, of any of them in, in, this, in this book. Is Here is this picture of, well, there's death in the pot. A man goes and he's gathering gourds and he's putting the stew together. And he grabs something apparently poisonous. And so people start to even go, oh, this is something bad. It's, it's going to kill us all. And I want us to realize that what appears to be these strange Miracles are really continuing explanations and declarations of God's power of what he's going to do. Here is this imagery that even in the face of Israel's rejection, there's a famine in the land. God has come to heal his people. God has come to heal those who will accept him and listen to him. And you see that picture happening here. And that's also foreshadowing the removal of the curse and removal of death and that Christ would do when he comes. And so Elisha continues this savior messianic figure who's coming along and he is he is reversing conditions. He's raising from the dead. He is healing those and takes rid of, gets rid of the death that's in the pot. He's able to pay off the debts. And then the final picture, I know you won't miss this one, verse 42. The man, a man came from Baal Shalisha. By the way, think about that for a minute. So we have a city in Israel that's called after a Baal. That's how, how great things are going in the nation of Israel right now. And he bringing to the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, fresh ears of grain from his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But the servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? And so he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. And so he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Final picture, and this one we know very well because here you have Elisha taking what is an insufficient amount of bread and feeding a hundred some people. And we know Jesus does this twice, feeding 5,000 and then feeding 4,000. And even the same thing where the disciple questions, it's not possible for us to do this. This isn't enough for all the people. And you go ahead and feed them anyway. And the same thing happens in both instances with Jesus, the 5,000 and the 4,000. Disciples questioning, saying this can't work. And then Jesus is able to do it. Now, as you look at the chapter, as I said, it just seems like a pile of random miracles all happening here. What is going on with all of this? What is the big point? What is the big threat? I want to draw our attention really back to the title and back to the idea of what we see with this woman, because what this woman does is striking. And I hope that the question that I posed to you earlier kind of still hung in your head as you think about how is this woman able to say all is well when his child, when her child died? How is she able to go up to the husband and say all is well? And then go up to Gehazi and say, all is well. It's all good. Everything is fine. 
And I think it is so important for us to think about what is taking place with her is that you see within her that she is able to tell her husband all is well because she knows it's all going to be well when she gets to the man of God. And even when she gets to Gehazi, Gehazi is all well, all is well. As soon as I get to the man of God. And that's certainly proven out when Gehazi is sent ahead to go and heal the son. Her words are, I'm not leaving you. As long as I'm with you, I know all is well. You see within her a tremendous faith. A tremendous faith that though the child dies, to say to the husband, to say to the servant, and even to say to Elisha, as long as I'm with you, and as long as I can get to you and be with you, it's all fine. And I want us just to think about, well, how does she get to that? It's clear from from the information given to us in verse 9 that she understands who Elisha is. She's not just randomly providing for this guy, but knows... He is a holy man of God. He is somebody special. And her understanding of who he is, I think, is everything to the faith that he that she is exhibiting at this moment, that she understands everything that was played out in this chapter. She understands that only with him is he going to be able to care for me, to give life, to reverse the condition, to do what I need. And there's nobody else. Why bother the husband? He can't fix this. Why bother Gehazi? It seems like she knows even he can't fix it. And she was right. He couldn't. Only the man of God, only Elisha is able to do that. And I just want us to consider this idea then for a moment, because essentially to have this idea of an all is well faith to truly mean, to truly believe that all is well comes from the knowledge of knowing that we have a God who wants to act for his people. That is the consistent thread through this. We have a woman whose husband is dead. She can't pay debts. And the man of God says, what can I do for you? And then there's a prominent woman, a wealthy woman, who's caring for the man of God. And the question to her is, well, what can I do for you? And then there's death in the pot. And the man of God is, here's what I'm going to do for you. And then here are the, the, uh, this man who comes with bread for These hundred men. Well, here's what I'm going to do for you. What I want you to observe in each of these instances. Is no one had to beg God to act. Sometimes I think there is a perception of God that thinks. God doesn't want to do anything for me. And I'll just beat him to death with prayer until he finally, you know, wakes up and maybe he'll want to do something for me. You have a picture in this chapter of a God who sees the concerns and the worries and the cares of his people 
and wants to do something about it. He wants to bless his people. He wants to pay their debts. He wants to reverse their condition. He wants to bring them joy. He wants to give them life. He wants to take care of death. He wants to feed his people. Over and over again, we're seeing a picture of God wanting to do for his people. And that's one of the beautiful things that you see with Jesus as well. You know, you don't come to the Gospels and people are like, hey, will you do something for us? No, I'm on vacation. Leave me alone. I'll see you maybe next week. No, no, I'm tired. Go away. Leave me alone. I need a break around here. I'm always amazed by that with Jesus because it'll talk about him being tired. And going to the other side of the sea to get away from the crowds for a moment, only to find multitudes on the other side. And he doesn't say, push me out into the middle and I'll just stay in the middle of the lake for a while so that somebody just leave me alone for a minute. He goes, okay, I'll take care of you too. And he feeds them all when he gets to the other side. We have a God who wants to act for his people. And that is the beauty of what is happening here is that we have a woman and we have in all of these scenes a reminder to us is that we want to run to God and we trust him no matter the circumstances because we know he cares. That he is not this belligerent God with his arms crossed and his back turned and you know, know, maybe I'll just ask him something. Maybe he'll listen. He wants to respond to us. That he cares for us. And so often I think we can forget. That we have a God. Who. Wants to do for us. And I think one of the reasons we can struggle with a strong prayer life. Is because sometimes I think we can feel like, well, our concerns and our requests and our problems are insignificant and I don't want to bother God. And, you know, I just don't, you know, it's just too. Here you have a God who says, I want everything. I want you to persist in prayer because I want to act on your behalf. I want to do good towards you. I want to give you the things you need and to remind us that we have a God who is with us no matter I think one of the reasons why we gravitate to certain songs in the scriptures is because they remind us of that great idea. One song that I think uh, has been probably put in every songbook ever since it was written, because it's, I, I, haven't, I just haven't encountered a songbook that doesn't have it. It is well with my soul. And I won't go into, I mean, the history of the, what the guy went through when he wrote that song is fascinating enough. But the words that are put in there, as you're going through all of the storms of life and the difficulties, this this grand chorus that keeps saying, but it's well with my soul. That's what the woman is doing right here. All is well. My child is dead. All is well. How do you think that all is well? Except that we have a God that we can run to. That we can trust him no matter what. And that he is with us no matter what happens. And so we recognize that we have a savior. Who will take care of us today. He knows what's happening. He desires to act. And he will care for us today. He'll take care of what we need today. 
if this were an adjunct to this morning, it's how you crush anxiety is knowing you have this kind of God. You have a God who cares, a God who sees, a God who acts, a God who will be with you no matter what. We are able to have that kind of bold faith that we are able to say that all is well or it is well with my soul because we have a Savior who is with us no matter what is happening today. And sometimes it's easy to forget that because here we are on this earth. And God can seem so far away. It seems like it's so distant. And yet these kinds of pictures are given to us and what smart people come along and say are silly miracles are there to remind us that God cares even about the little details. You'd say, oh, well, it's just a bad batch of stew. You know, what's the big deal? God cares. God even cares about those little details. God cares about what would be seemingly small things that people come along and laugh at such a thing. But God cares. And I hope that it would give us encouragement in the same way to see in each of these sections you have God five times through Elisha showing. I care about your circumstance. And that God is saying the same thing to you this very night. What can I do for you? That's the kind of God we serve. What can he do for you today? to help you get through this day. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing image that shows us so much about who you are as exemplified through your servant, Elisha. And Lord, we thank you that you pay our debts, debts that we cannot repay, debts that we cannot deal with because of our sin. And Lord, we thank you for giving us life. We thank you for reversing our condition that we should be children of wrath and separated from you. We thank you for giving us healing. We thank you for caring for us. We thank you for providing for us and feeding us until we are satisfied. Oh Lord, please help us to see that our satisfaction is in you alone. And that you truly are a God with your hands stretched out that is asking us, what can you do for us? Thank you for being this God. And Lord, help us to be emboldened to come before your throne more regularly, with greater frequency, that we would just talk to you all day, every day, about whatever is on our heart and whatever is on our mind. Lord, we thank you for prayer. We thank you that you have not left us alone, but that you have said that our prayers come up before your very throne like a sweet aroma, like incense before your your very throne room. Thank you for that imagery so that we have the faith and the knowledge that these are not empty words that hit the ceiling, but that you hear our cries. You pay attention to our distresses. Thank you for being such a God. Lord, we carry so many burdens in our hearts. There's so many things that we struggle with in this life. As we struggle with loss and struggle with pain and struggle with suffering and struggle with sin. And so, Lord, would you give us the comfort we need at this time? Give us the strength that we need to give ourselves to you more fully. 
Give us the strength to get through yet another day so that we'd be faithful servants of yours yet once more. God, forgive us for not trusting in you as we should and we can. Forgive us for when we have not seen that all is well as long as we have you with us. And Lord, thank you for those powerful pictures that are given to us to remind us of that. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You you think about how often God tried to show that to us. One of my favorite pictures of that is Jesus and disciples are in the sea and a great storm rises up and disciples are panicking. Jesus is sleeping. Don't you care that we're perishing? (laughs) Oh, we could only see that we have the Lord in the boat with us. It's all going to be just fine. There's nothing to worry about here. God is with us. And we help you in any way come to Jesus this very night so that you could have that same relationship to see the hope and trust that you can have in him as a follower and child of God. We want you to do that. And we help you in any way once you come while we stand and while we sing.